Stephanie, I hope I don't mess you up. Yeah. Well, amen. Glad you guys are here today. I tell you what, I, uh, I want to do something before we begin, okay? Um, message is a pretty strong message. I think a pretty relevant message. Um, it's going to be for all of us, but being this is Father's Day, what I, I think what we ought to do and is just take a moment and kneel before God. And I want to invite dads. Uh, to come forward and kneel here at the front, okay? I know that's a little hard for some, and I understand that. Don't feel like you have to, okay? But if you're a daddy, I'd, I'd just like, guys, uh, for you to come and maybe kneel here for a moment. One of the things I'm learning is, as, as I'm going through my study of the book of Revelation is we live in challenging times. Today's lesson for us is going to be challenging. And uh, uh, one of the things that, that guys, we've got to do, uh, we've got to be men of God. Uh, I don't know about the past. I don't know what it was like for them back then. But guys, I'm convinced that in the day we live, our families can't afford to have a daddy who's marginal. Um, we can't have daddies that are wishy-washy, that uh, float around the edges. We got to have men of God. And I just want us to pray together, guys, that God would make us. We can't be it without God making it, right? But we want God to make us. Father, I love you. And I feel so unworthy. And I feel so emotional right now. I, God, I need your spirit to calm me a little bit. God, we live in a time where we as men and fathers must be men and fathers. No longer can we afford the luxury of floating, letting our wives assume roles that we should have. No longer can we afford to be detached from our kids. No longer can we afford, Lord, uh, if it's a luxury, I don't know, of just being not involved. We have to be involved in our families. We have to be involved in our schools. We have to be involved in our churches. Men have to be involved. We have to be involved in our nation, the culture that we live in cries and screams for men to stand up and lead. And it's hard for us to do that. I, I believe all of that back in the garden uh, just, just stuck a knife in, in manhood. And it's been hard. It is hard. Always has been hard. Always will be hard. But nonetheless, God, we've got to be. Because if we don't, we lose our home. When we lose our home, we lose our church. When we lose our church, we lose the nation. And I want to pray for these, my brothers right here, these men who I know feel inadequate and insufficient to fulfill their calling. And yet, God, your calling is irrevocable. Your calling has nothing to do with inadequacy or insufficiency. You're your calling 
has to do with obedience. And these dear men, uh, God, need to have courage. They need to know that you look at them and you undergird them and you strengthen them. And when they lack wisdom, you'll give it. When they lack strength, you'll give it. You'll give them shade in front of the sun. You'll give them moisture in the dryness. And I pray for them. And I, I lift them. They're, these are good men. And they love their families. They wouldn't be at church on a day when they could be doing something else if they weren't at church. But God, we know we're so weak. We know, God, without your smile, without the, us feeling your hand on our shoulders, we can't do what we've got to do. And so, God, I, I just pray for these men that, uh, God, as only your spirit can do deep within them, that you'll, you'll just call them up. Call them to rise tall, stand tall through Christ. That we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And that means we can be the husbands, and the fathers, grandfathers, church members, Christians, citizens that we need to be. I pray for them this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. I know it. Some of you, you notice I didn't kneel. My back hurts too much. All right, guys, thank you. As you're making your way back, ladies, if you'll take your Bible, open it up for your husbands. They're a little older and they're a little sore right now. Let's take our Bibles and let's go to Revelation chapter 2, okay? Revelation chapter 2, and I hope you brought your Bible. Everyone should have it because all I know what to do is tell you to open it and we start digging from it, okay? We're going to be looking at a, a, an interesting church today. We're going to explore... I believe a real interesting letter. Let me ask you a question as we begin. How would you like to live in a place where Satan lives? How would you like to live in a place where Satan has his throne? A little intimidating, isn't it? Huh? But today in our study, if you remember when we started, I didn't want this to be a preaching exercise. I wanted it to be more like a, a giant uh, Sunday school class, okay? Well, in our lesson today, we're going to talk about a church that lived in the very center of Satanism, okay? And I'm not saying that we're, we, we're there, okay? I believe some of the things we're going to talk about and some of the things we're going to see uh, remind us, might make us think we are. I don't know that you can compare Saline County to Pergamum, Brian or Benton to Pergamum, uh, but we're going to be talking about a church in a town where Satan lived. The word lived that's used that we'll read is a word which means to dwell. Satan dwelt there. His throne was there. Now, if you've been with us in our study, we started in Ephesus. I'd mentioned to you that was the church of the dying love, and Jesus said, repent to them. Last week, we stopped for a little bit in Smyrna, church of the sweet fragrance, the church that was crushed. I mentioned to you that you can't smell good for Jesus unless you're broken. 
You can't have the sweet fragrance of Christ unless there's a, a crushing going on. The more the crushing, the sweeter the smell. And Jesus simply said, don't fear, be faithful. Be faithful unto death, okay? Well, this morning I want us to get on our bicycles and our motorcycles. That's a little bit easier. And I want us to pedal or drive 55 miles north, turn a little bit inward, uh, inward from the Aegean Sea, and we're going to come to a town that has about, back then had 160,000 people, today about 20,000 people called Bergamo, okay? And I want you to, real, at the very beginning of our lesson, I want you to understand that the church was facing an incredible challenge. It was a commitment to truth. And as we read the letter, as we walk through the letter, you're going to find that even though there were a few in the church, there's always a remnant in the church. I don't care how bad it gets. With a real, true church, there's always going to be a few. There will always be a remnant. And there was a remnant there that stood strong for the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to find that this church had compromise written all over it. They were challenged for truth, yet they were compromising. Ephesus struggled with love. This church struggled with truth. And gang, let me tell you something. Uh, hear me out. Every church in every generation has always struggled with trying to balance those two virtues. Love on the one hand truth on the other. There are some churches today that are so caught up in the love end, the feel-good end, that they're just nothing but sloppy soft. And you can't be a church if it's all about feel-good, if it's all about me and how I feel, okay? And yet there's some other churches today that are caught up in the hard self-righteousness, the, the hard line. And they're so mean, and they're so strong. And I don't think you can be a real, true church if you're overboard in that area. Somehow, in the challenge of churches in every generation and the challenge facing our sweet family here, we've got to wrestle with love on the one hand, truth on the other hand, and somehow we've got to find the balance. And I want to tell you, gang, that's not easy. You dads that came down here, it's not easy in your home, is it? Huh? I mean, you, one, one respect, you want to get up every morning and start the day with your kids, bend over and touch your toes and get it over with and whoop them, right? But on the other end, you just want to smother them with love. Well, what's true in a home is true in a church. And somehow, with Ephesus and love and with, with uh, Pergamum and truth, we have to find that, that balance. Now, they're not mutually exclusive. They have to work together if the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to be proclaimed and have effect, okay? Let me tell you a little bit about Pergamum and kind of help set the idea here that I, I want to go, okay? Pergamum was not a commercial city. The first two churches we looked at were very strong commercial cities. Pergamum was not a commercial city. It was a cultural city. 
It didn't have any major roads, and so the, the driving of the, the monster was not commerce. It was an, an intellectual center, okay? It had a big university. It had an incredibly large library. Pergamum was the town that introduced to us the writing of letters on animal skins called parchment. So they were big into the mind and big into thinking and, and big into philosophy. It was known for four major uh, pagan worship, um, um, worship things, whatever. Okay? Had four pagan temples, okay? One of them was Zeus, uh, and you probably seen Zeus on Saturday morning cartoons, right? The largest temple for Zeus was in Pergamum, okay? It also had a god there that they were, a false god they worshipped, which was called the god of healing. It was named Acephalus. And if you go to a doctor's office sometimes, you'll see this serpent twined on a, on a stake. Uh, that actually came from Pergamum because it was uh, in reference to, of course, we know a false god, but the idea of healing, okay? Now, as is true with most intellectual centers, the great challenge is really not with regard to idea, uh, to, to people, but with regard to ideas, okay? It was a challenge that deals with philosophy, a challenge that deals with cultural norms, and it's important that we understand the challenge because I want to suggest to you, and I don't want to suggest to you, I want to tell you, that's part of our challenge today. Gang, we are challenged in the area of philosophy and rationalism today. What is being said today is that true or false is not absolute based upon what we would say God's word as Christians. But what is true or what is false is depending upon the situation that you find yourself in. That's called situation ethics, and I'm sure you've heard of that, okay? The circumstance that you find yourself in determines how you respond or how you make your decisions. The circumstance determines what is true or what is not true. And so what happens when you're in a circumstantial type or circumstance, then you, instead of taking God's absolutes, the word of God, which is the basis of your decisions, or at least should be the basis of your decisions, then you get caught up in feelings. You get caught up in, in emotions. We, uh, we find ourselves caught up wondering, is this, is this really true or is it not true? How do I respond to that or how do I make my decisions from that? Basically what happens in our culture, and it was happening then, but it happens, I think, very prevalent today, is we just reject the Word of God. The Word of God is God's absolute truth, right? I mean, there's no variation there, man. If you want to know about life, and if you want to know how to live your life, and if you want to know how to make the decisions of life, you take the Word of God. But because everything's so situational, and everything is so uh, marginal today, what you do is you set aside the Word of God, and so what dictates your life, your decisions, then become your feelings, passions, or desires. And that leads to sin. And then sin leads to destruction. Now, if there's one thing we can get from our study so far, it is this. That pressure and persecution can never destroy a church. But defective love and defective truth can. Let me 
let me tell you something. You already know this, but, but let me just tell you anyway. Sin promises something. But gang, sin never pays anything. Sin will show up attractive. It'll show up rewarding. Sin will even show up refreshing. But it'll never expose itself as filth. Never expose itself as foul. Never expose itself as damning and destroying until it has you in its clutches. And many times, for many people, it's too late. The reason I, I asked our men to come forward is because we need to know that Satan dresses up sin very, very pretty. But when sin has you, sin kills you. And you need to remember that. Let me mention one other thing, and then we'll, we'll read the Scripture, okay? Only the Word of God can vindicate you. And only the Word of God can validate you as a person. I learned a long time ago that as a pastor, by the way, pastors are prone to mistakes. Uh, I know, go ahead and say it, you want to. I learned a long time ago, if I try to define myself or defend myself, I, I'm going to fail. I learned that the Word of God must define who I am as a person. The Word of God must define who I am as a pastor. The Word of God, only the Word of God can validate who I am and vindicate who I am. And as long as I live my life following as best I can the boundaries of the Word of God, I can make it. You can make it, dads. But the moment a pastor steps outside, the moment a man, a dad, a husband steps outside the boundaries of the Word of God, then that pastor, then that man, that husband, and that father begins to fall apart. It's got to be God's Word. That's why in our Sunday school classes, that's why on Sunday morning when I preach or Don preach or Mark preaches, we have to stand before you. And we have to say to you, take your Bible. Open up your Bible. Look at me at these verses. And if you guys ever decide to leave Indian Springs and you go to a church, by the way, you'll rot if you do. But if you decide to do that, and the preacher doesn't stand and say, open your Bible. Be sweet and kind and get out of there. Because, gang, the only thing that we've got that is truthful is the Bible. That's all we got. And it's got to be sufficient, okay? All right, that's my introduction. Let's stand, okay? Revelation chapter 2. Let's read verses 12 through 18. See what we have today, okay? Revelation chapter 2. Verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell. Remember every letter, every letter Jesus says, I know. Beloved, I want you to know today that Jesus knows you today. He knows exactly where you are. He knows where your heart is. He knows where your head is. 
You might hide from your spouse the things you're struggling with. You might hide from your church the things you're struggling with. You might cover it up real good, but I want you to know that God knows everything about you. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwelt twice. You notice the reference to where Satan lives, huh? But I have a few things against you. Because you have some there, we have there some, who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. And then he closes as he does in all the letters. He who has an ear to hear, meaning not everybody's going to have an ear, okay? But he who does have an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Father, I, I love this letter, although it is as challenging as any of the letters that Jesus wrote to the churches. And Father, I want to ask your help this morning. I, I feel some conflictingness in my heart or, or something, uh, and I'm having a little trouble with my thoughts and my words already. So this is bound to be very important. And so, God, I pray you'll give me uh, your, your, your heart today, maybe uh, the, the, the wisdom from on high today, that I can share uh, what I've studied and, 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 and package it in a way that we can get from it what we need as Indian Springs Church uh, today. So clear our head and clear our heart to receive your message, I pray. In Christ's name, amen. Okay? Well, keep your Bible open with me. You can be, go ahead and be seated. As is true in every church, in every age, Pergamum had a remnant there that, that held the fort, even though the enemy was very close outside the walls. The challenge for them, the challenge for any church, is that, that it's not the enemies on the outside. I mean, if, if you have any kind of spiritual uh, maturity at all, you, you know that the enemy's always going to be on the outside, and the enemy's always going to be taking pot shots to those that are within the walls of the church. That's the way it is. But the challenge facing Pergamum is the same challenge sometimes that we face is sometimes the enemies are on the inside, and it's hard to pick them out. It's hard to know. It's one thing to shoot at the enemy on the outside, but gang, how do you shoot on, at the enemy on, on the inside? You know, that's the way it has been in, in every generation. Now, the first thing that Jesus does is that he offers a, condom, a commendation to them. He commends them, the few anyway, for holding true and holding strong in the very center of paganism, in the center of Satan worship. Satan lived right there. 
But there were some that would not cave in. There were some that would not give in to the enemy. In fact, one of them was a martyr. We don't know anything about Antipas other than he died as a witness. The word witness and the word martyr is the same thing. So we know he died as a martyr, as a witness for the cause of Jesus Christ in the very center of where Satanism lived. Do you understand how important that is? I mean, the host of hell was working against everybody in the church in Pergamum. Man, the pressure was intense, kind of like the pressure is today in the culture in which we live. And yet there was one man who would stand up and say, no, I'm not going there. I don't believe that. And ultimately he gave his life for it. And the only thing we know is that Jesus said, my faithful one. And when I got to that point, I had to stop for just a moment. And I had to ask myself, would Jesus say that about me? Can I be personal? Steve, would Jesus say that about you? Shane? Huh? You know? Eddie? Wayne? You know? Greg? Rich? Andrew? Andy? Here was a guy who lived in the very center of wickedness. In the very center of darkness, when all the host of hell was raging against the church. And Jesus said, I got one. He died for me. He was a martyr for the cause. He was a, a witness of who I am. He was my faithful one. And I wonder if Jesus would say that about Indian Springs Baptist Church in the community in which we live. Right after that, if you look at verse 14 and 50, Jesus shifts and he, he begins to issue a condemnation to them and, and we've got to talk about it. Boy, it'd be nice for us to say we're witnesses for Christ. Though they slay me, yet will I serve him and we walk out of here and have a Father's Day meal. That'd be so cool. In fact, if you invite me over, we'll have barbecue, okay? But Jesus doesn't do that, gang. And so I want you to look at verse 14 and 15 because he issues them a, a condemnation. There's an infiltration that had occurred into the church. The enemy had snuck in, and the enemy had begun to make some inroads, okay? He mentions two doctrines. If you look at verse 14, there's the doctrine of Balaam. Well, what is that? Well, if you were to go, we don't have time, but you may want to jot down Numbers chapter 25 through uh, 22 through 25 in your Bibles. Because if you were to go back into the Old Testament, you would find that there was a prophet for hire, Balaam. He was hired by a king, Balak of Moab, to curse Israel. And every time he tried to curse Israel, every time he issued a curse, God would stop him. And so what Balaam decided to do, since he couldn't curse Israel, he decided to corrupt Israel through immorality. And beloved, it worked. I doubt any of us in this room today would deny that one of Satan's most devious and sinister attacks in every age, especially today, is sexual perversion. If he can get us to lower our standards, if he can get us to, to lower our, our disciplines and live by our passions and emotion, not by our spiritual senses and disciplines, he knows he can destroy the very fabric of our society, which is our homes. 
And if he destroys our home by extension, then he begins to destroy the church. And when he destroys the church, then he'll begin to destroy the nation. Gang, listen to me for just a moment. The church of Jesus Christ has always been the filter through which God blesses a nation. And if Satan can destroy the home, he'll get the church. And if he gets the church, then he'll begin to wreak, wreak havoc on a nation. Is our nation in peril today? Is our nation being challenged today? Yes. Why? Because the church is not being what the church has been called to be. Guys, we're not being the man that God has called us to be. We're the filters. We're the bleach in the wash that purifies the nation. And when we cease to be men of God, then Satan begins his work against the nation. The world's philosophy is to go for it. God's philosophy is to run from it. Joseph did in the Old Testament it worked, and it honored God. Sexual compromise kills homes, kills churches. And I have to tell you, I think we'd be appalled today to wonder how many people in our churches are being eat up with sexual issues. Some of the stuff I read about pornography is absolutely mind-blowing, guys. And I want to tell you something. If you're struggling with it, you need help. And you can't go to the world for it, but you ought to be able to come to the church for it. You see. Well, the doctrine of Balaam was a doctrine of sexual immorality. And my, how rampant it is in our world. The doctrine of the Nicolaitan, which is the second one that Jesus mentions here, is a little bit harder to define. Some things it's it, it, by the way, it was mentioned in Ephesus. Remember the first letter? Some think it's sexual promiscuity as well. I, I, don't, I don't think that, okay? I, I believe it deals with spiritual seduction, not sexual seduction. Uh, many of the early church fathers believe that it basically stemmed from a guy by the name of Nicholas who in Acts 8 was called by the church to be one of the helpers. He began to go sideways a little bit, began to get outside the boundaries of the Word of God and began to, 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 to build up what we would call idolatry. And the idea was this. It's so prevalent, I think, today, that if grace saves me, then grace allows me to do what I want to do. If I'm saved by grace, and I am, then grace takes away the boundaries. And because I'm saved by grace, then I can do anything I want to do. In fact, the rationale is if grace, grace saves me, then the more I sin, the more grace gives. And that may sound so good. The problem is it's not biblical truth. And the problem is it's indicative of an unregenerate church member. Here's the idea. Well, if grace saves, then the more I sin, the more grace I get. It means I don't have to live a certain way now because of grace. I don't have to apply disciplines to my life because of grace. I don't have to be faithful to Jesus and his bride 
because of grace. I don't even have to go to church and be a good steward because of grace. I don't need to regularly worship or hang with brothers and hang with sisters because of grace. And it's a wrong philosophy, and it's indicative of a lost church. You want to know why so many people today don't go to church regularly? You want to know why so many today are, are, are not faithful to God? And the reason is because they're lost. They're lost. I have to tell you, I, I've been pastoring, it's getting close to 30 years. And um, and I, I, I just, I, I've loved these, uh, these 17 years here. I never thought I'd ever stay 17 years anywhere without getting fired. And so, you know, it's kind of exciting to think I'm made 17 years. But I have to tell you, I used to get really frustrated. I, as we began to grow, I, I, you know, would look at the names. I would go through our Sunday school roles, and I would look at our classes. And I happen to believe, by the way, uh, the strength of a church is in the Sunday school, okay? It's not coming to hear me preach. I don't know why anybody do that anyway. Um, but the strength of a church is in the small groups. It's in the Sunday school. Okay? You just need to know my heart. We're a Sunday school-driven church because we believe that it's that important to you. In fact, if you're not in Sunday school, you're missing the study of Job. And, uh, you know, uh, you need that, frankly. Okay? Uh, but let me just tell you, let me share my heart. I, I used to, I, I would go down the road. Rich, I would take your role, and I would, I would look at those that I didn't see very often in your role or, or my class or, or any of the classes. And let me tell you, I, used to, I found myself so frustrated. Why aren't they coming, I would say. And I found anger building up and, and anger toward them coming up. And then all of a sudden, it began to dawn on me. It, it, frustration led to great sadness. Because you see, when, when people don't have a heart to support church or to be faithful to church, certainly faithful to small group, it's indicative of a, of a grave spiritual problem. And the problem could very well be they're not saved. They're unregenerate. Now listen, I'm not saying folks that don't come to Sunday school are, are not saved. I don't know that. I don't know hearts. What I'm saying is this. If you've got 30 people on a roll and you're averaging 10 to 12 people and it's the same 10 to 12 people, and you've got 15 people that you don't ever see except maybe Christmas or Easter, then there's something spiritually dreadfully wrong with that, and there's a big possibility, people, that they may never know who Christ really is. Do you remember when you first came to know Christ? Let me say that another way. Do you remember when Christ first claimed you for himself? Do you remember the thrill of that moment? Do you remember the hunger and the thirst of that? Let me tell you, gang, when Christ enters a life, when Christ takes away the shackles of sin, when Christ gives new life, there's going to be something in that life that's going to make them thirsty for the drink that comes from the well of Jesus. There's going to be something on the table 
Now, maybe it's dessert like I like. I don't know. But there's something on the table that's going to create a hunger for the things of God. And seven days to wait to come back is almost too long. That's called the regenerated heart. That's called the conversion to Christ. There is something within the heart of a believer that longs for the things of Jesus Christ. And I believe the doctrine of the Nicolaitans is, I don't need any of that. I'm fine. Grace is saved, so I'm just going to live it up and enjoy what I want to enjoy. And the problem is, that's not indicative of a saved person or a saved church. It's indicative of a lost person. Now listen, I, I, I know we have bad hair days, okay? I know that. And I know you can't be at church every time the doors open. I understand that. Next week, I'm not going to church, okay? So I'm going to be, oh, I'm gonna, you know, confession is good for the soul. I'm going to be at a ball game, okay? I understand vacations. I understand bad hair days. I understand even weariness. I understand there's probably uh, a periods of time that we go through that there's a, there's a dryness there, right? Like a desert. I mean, there's nothing to, to, that, that parches the throat. You, you're burnt up. I understand. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a heart desire for the things of God. I'm talking about something that, 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 that drives the machine for Jesus. And those who have the doctrine of Nicolaitans are those who don't have any desire, no longing for righteousness and for godliness. That's the condemnation that Jesus gives. It well suited Pergamum. I wonder, does it well suit our Christian culture today. Well, what does he say? Well, look at verse 16. He tells them to repent, or else I'm coming very quickly and make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He tells them to repent. That's kind of interesting. He tells Ephesus, who had defective love, to do what? Repent. He tells this church, who has defective truth, to repent. Can I tell you what I think? Can I tell you what me thinks? Me thinks that every church and every believer should live in a constant state of repentance. R.C. Sproul is, is a, a great, wonderful Bible teacher today. In one of his little devotional books, here's what he wrote. He said, the Word of God teaches us that God requires that we proclaim faith and repentance each and every day of our life. And beloved, I believe that. I understand that there's a moment of repentance when God brings you into the kingdom and he, he, he regenerates your heart and you repent of your sin and by faith you embrace Christ Jesus, died on the cross once and you're saved once and you're always saved. I understand that. But I want to tell you what I found about my life, that even though I've been saved a long time, I still have trouble with Tom. And so there's an element of Tom that still wants to rebel against God, that still wants to go his own way and do his own thing. I'm finding out that I have to live in a constant state of repentance. If I don't, I lose the joy of who I am 
in Christ. I'm working on a message that I'm going to be sharing sometime down the road. And the, name, the title of the message is The Most Repentant Man in the Bible. And my subject is Peter. Because every time Peter opened his mouth, he had to get on his knees, right? Every time he did something, taking off in here, or saying to Jesus, Jesus, you're wrong. How, how did he get away with that? You know? The dude had to repent every day of his life. And I think that's the only way that Christians can live every day of their life. Now listen, repentance isn't being feeling sorry or feeling guilty. It may include that. Repentance is turning around and going in a different direction continually, continually, okay? Well, look at verse 17. Let me kind of begin to pull it together, if I can pull it together, okay? Verse 17, okay, notice the comfort that he gives. He said, if you have an ear, listen, overcomers, pay attention. And the first thing he does, he talks about hidden manna. Well, what is hidden manna? Well, in the Old Testament, manna was the bread that came down from heaven to feed the travelers on their journey. The, the, the tribe of Israel, as they were going through the wilderness, began to do what every Baptist does regularly, start complaining. And so they said they didn't have food. And so God began to supply food, and he supplied manna, the bread of heaven, for them. In the New Testament, Jesus says he's the bread of life. Let me tell you what I think this hidden manna is. I think it's the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Even though you may live in the seedbed of Satanism, even though you may live at, at the very point of paganism, what this hidden manner represents to us with Christ, I'm fully sufficient for what he gives. He's my nourishment. He'll supply everything I need to live the way I should live. Jesus even said, if you eat me, you shall live because of me. Immorality, dear people. Idolatry, dear people. Are false substitutes of the sin substitute who was Jesus Christ on the cross. What is the white stone? Well, some conjecture here. In those days, stones were used in a court of law. A black stone meant you were guilty. A white stone meant you were acquitted and you were free. Some think that's what it is. Some said that in those days when they would have contests, those who would win the contest would be given a white stone, and this stone would be their invitation into the celebration that would come. I don't know which it is. I can tell you both of those are kind of exciting for us, aren't they not? I mean, as we live, Christ is our sufficiency. When we die, we have something better waiting for us. We have a, a new name. So... We live with his sufficiency. We die in celebration. Either one of those will work for Tom. Hmm? Should work for us. Okay? Well, I'm going to summarize our lesson. Okay? Um, in the days in which we live, Pergamum days, I believe, we have to be careful and understand the motives of Satan. When you study Satan in the Bible and all the different terms, there's two major attacks of Satan against Christians, okay? First of all, he loves to entice us if he can. What does the Bible say about Satan? He dresses up as an angel of what? Light. In other words, he dresses up as someone who's beautiful, someone who is refreshing, someone who's rewarding, or something that's refreshing or rewarding. So one of the major attacks he, 
he, he, he works against Christians is in the area of enticement. He's going to make you think this is what you don't have. If you'll follow me, this is what you, all you got to do is give in, and you can have this. Now, if that fails, then he tries to intimidate us. What are, what are the other definitions of Satan? He comes to us as a roaring what? Lion. And so on the one hand, he's trying to entice us with everything that's good and wonderful and beautiful. On the other hand, he's trying to intimidate us and scare us. A lot of scared Christians today, okay? So what do we do? Well, there's some dangers for us in our culture. And I want to mention three, and then we're out of here, okay? The first danger is the danger of toleration or indifference. In other words, it's easy to get worn down in our culture, gang. It's easy to get weary trying to live righteous. Live righteous anyway. Because the end's going to be worth it. You understand me? It's hard sometimes. You get weary in it. I understand. Live it anyway. It'll be worth it in the end, okay? Number two, there's the danger of accommodation. The good and bad have always existed side by side. Always will until Jesus come. Be patient. Jesus told a parable about that, right? Should we go out and get rid of them? No, be patient, he says. Listen, we've always existed side by side, the good and the bad, always have, always will. Be patient. There's a day coming where a white stone with your name on it will be given to you. you see. And then the danger of what I'm going to call minimization. And I want you to understand something very important as we leave this morning. We should never minimize sin. And we should min never minimize truth. We can't. Dads, you that came down and prayed here at the front, you can't. Not today, not any longer. We must always hate sin. We must always love truth. We must combat iniquity and confront iniquity. And we must celebrate righteousness. We must boast in God. We must glory in the cross. Regardless of how the world responds to us, regardless how the world treats us, regardless of the world, how, how the world may try to intimidate us, we must always hate sin and celebrate righteousness. You know why? Because Jesus says we're overcomers. Jesus said that the victory, that's the word overcomers, Nike, the victory is ours in the Lord. Well, let's pray. I, I went long today. I had, a, I had a whole bunch more I could say. But we're Baptists. We have to have an invitation and an offering, huh? <laughs> let's pray.